We only have two weeks left in our series, uh, A Year in the Life of Jesus. It's been so fun. We've been actually, I think we started this the end of April. And uh, we've been taking a look at a chronological year in Jesus' life, looking at the Gospel of John, chapters 2 through 4. And uh, several weeks ago, we, um, we came upon the scripture in John 4 about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And I was breaking that down. How can I, how can I preach this in one week? So decided to preach it in three weeks. So we've done a mini-series within the big series and uh, full of scandal and everything a mini-series is supposed to be. Uh, and this is part three of three in that mini-series. So if you'd like to open your, your pew Bibles or whatever Bible you brought, we are in John's Gospel, chapter 4. And um, what I'm going to do is just give a quick review of the things that we've talked... Whoa, to be light. Thank you. Give a quick quick review of where we've been the last few sermons for those of you who are here for the first time or uh, missed a few weeks. Here we go. Jesus and his disciples stop in Samaria. Now this in itself is a very odd move for Jesus because in that day, Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. In fact, they pretty much despised each other. But Jesus takes his disciples through there and the scripture says that he had to go. And what we're learning is that he had to go there because the Spirit was prompting Jesus to go reach this people. We'll hear about that more today. So they stop at Jacob's well, this well in Samaria, and Jesus is exhausted, tired, thirsty, hungry. He sends his disciples into a town to go buy food. And while he's there by himself, a Samaritan woman comes to the well to draw water. She's by herself. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, women were not supposed to go outside by themselves without a male escort. And they certainly weren't supposed to be talking to, to men And Jewish men, especially Jewish teachers like Jesus, were not supposed to be talking with Samaritan women. So this whole thing is scandalous, especially if you're a first century reader, and we're not, but try to imagine how scandalous that might be. It might be like, uh, you know, Pastor Chris was at the bar and he's he's talking to a prostitute or something like that. Yeah. So anyways pretty out there. So Jesus is talking with this woman, and uh, he, he offers her something called living water. Living water. And in that day, living water could mean one of two things. It could mean just fresh running water that was like in a stream or, or, or a bubbling brook or a spring that wasn't stagnant. Or it could mean the presence of God in the Spirit. In fact, in the Old Testament, God is referred to sometimes as a spring of water, of living water, a fountain of water. So Jesus offers the woman this living water. She does not understand that he's talking about the Spirit of God, but she thinks something different. She thinks it's magical water that if she drinks, she won't get thirsty anymore. So in a way, she shows great faith by asking Jesus, give me this water. I mean, that would be faith anyway if Jesus could actually give her water that if she drank at once, she'd never be thirsty again. So it's pretty incredible. So the woman asked for this living water, and... Jesus does not let her just have it. In fact, he kind of lets her have it. He digs deep into her sin and, and, her, and her pain. And he tells the woman that he knows about her past. She had been divorced five times, which that would kind of be a little bit weird today. But in that culture, like five divorces is pretty major. And she's living with a guy who's not even her husband. So this is a big shocker in that culture. 
She's in pain. She's in isolation from her community. And Jesus confronts her with her pain from her past. Now, to make matters worse, she is confronted with all of this pain and she doesn't know what to do with it. She says, you know, mister, my people, the Samaritans, say that the place to deal with this is at our temple in Mount Gerizim. But you Jews say that it's in Jerusalem. I don't know what to believe. Because in those days, the, the way you dealt with sin and shame was to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. Now here's the deeper problem. Even if she found out where she could, which temple was the correct one, she wouldn't be allowed in in the first place. Because she was a sinful woman. And only the privileged men could really get deep into the, into the temple. So there she is, almost despairing, I imagine, when she says to Jesus, I know that when the Messiah comes, He will explain this to me. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am He. I who speak to you am He. And that's where we pick up the story this evening. Verse 27. This evening we get to figure out what happens to this woman. How does she respond? Verse 27. At this point, the disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the disciples had gone to buy food. They've missed this whole episode with the woman at the well and asking about living water. Uh, They've missed the whole thing about Jesus confronting her sin. And now they just show up. And of course, they're amazed that their teacher is talking with this Samaritan woman. Now, to the disciples' credit, they do a really good thing here. They don't call him out in public. It would have been a big showdown if they would have said, Jesus, what's up? Why are you talking with this woman? But they show great respect to their teacher. Now, I said, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, that in ancient Near Eastern culture, if a man and a woman who were not married were alone together for 20 minutes or more, it was generally thought that they had sex. I mean, it was that kind of culture. So the disciples come back and they actually trust that Jesus had not done anything wrong. They trust their master. They don't say anything out loud. Now, they're probably waiting until she would leave so they could say, what's up? But they do not call him out in public. So in one sense, the disciples do a great thing. But there's something else I think John, the author, wants us to see. Let me read this again. I'm going to get you involved because this is hot in here, isn't it? I know you're falling asleep. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Alright, English majors, what person is this speaking in? First, second, or third? I see the third person written. Everyone's too embarrassed. Okay, third person. It's narration. John, the writer, wants us to know something about this story. That the disciples did not say, what do you seek? Alright, quiz. Now, this isn't for first timers, don't worry about this one, but I'm expecting Letter Streets folks to know the answer to this question. Where have we heard the phrase, what do you seek before? What's that philosophy professor? 
Thank you, Ryan. Yes. In fact, the first words that, that John records coming out of Jesus' mouth, period, in this gospel are, What do you seek? Now check this out. John tells us in the first chapter that Jesus is none other than the creator of the universe. He's the Word who was with God and who was God. This God so humbled Himself that He became a person to dwell among us, to dwell among sinful people. A few of these sinful people, some men, began to follow Him. They had been disciples of John the Baptist, and now they're following Jesus. And Jesus, remember, God in the flesh, turns to them and says, What are you seeking? What do you seek? That's His first words uttered in John's Gospel. Now, these men who encountered the Samaritan woman with Jesus are probably those very same guys. This, the same guys who received grace from Jesus. The same guys who had the God of the universe condescend to their level and speak to them, Guys, what are you seeking? They don't even give that woman the time of day. And John the author wants us to know that they did not say, What do you seek to the woman? They do not extend hospitality to her. The prejudice got in the way. And I wonder, I was thinking about this as I'm preparing. You and I, we've received grace from Christ. Where do we hold back extending grace to other people? In fact, just for a little application, you have some sermon notes in your bulletin. I want us to write down the name of one person. Write down the name of one person who you might try and extend a little extra grace to this week. And you know, there's generally two types of people that we need to do that with. People that are very different than us, and oftentimes, at least in my case, the people that are closest to me often get the brunt. So, Corey's name is on mine. One person you might extend grace to this week. So the disciples, they come back, and now let's listen to what happens with the Samaritan woman. How does she respond to Jesus saying, I am He? So the woman left her water pot, I'm in verse 28, and went into the city and said to the men, Come see, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to Him. They were coming to Jesus because of this woman's testimony. The Samaritan woman at the well had encountered the forgiveness of God, the love of God, the acceptance of God. She encountered the presence of God. She would never be the same. In fact, she chose in her mind to drink from the living water that Jesus was offering. And now she has become a spring of living water. It's what Jesus promised earlier on in the scripture. I've got water that if you drink it, your belly, that's the Greek, your belly will become a spring of living water. It will gush out. You won't be able to control it. That's exactly what happens to this woman.
springs of water gushing out of her belly. She drops the water pot, this earthen vessel that she's brought to the well to dip into regular water. She drops it and runs back to the city. Why? Because that pot's no good for the new kind of water that she's got. Earthly things can't hold the spring of living water that Jesus wants to give. She runs back. She can't contain her joy. When's the last time you couldn't contain yourself telling somebody about something awesome? New car? Everyone ever bought a new car, even if it's not brand new, and just wanted to show people? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I remember when we were first married in 97. I mean, we've only been married once, but that's when we were married. I've done this before, so I'm, I'm catching myself. Uh, yeah, in 97, we had these two junker cars. Actually, mine was not a junker. 84 Subaru wagon. <sighs> Slept in that thing up at Whistler so many times. Anyway, Corey suggested that we get rid of our cars and we buy one new car that was reliable. So we got our Honda Civic, and I, you know, I was so proud of that. I was taking my little brother and sister for rides and that. And a good car. So, new car. If you ever get excited about stuff, how about all you with the new 3GS, the iPhone 3GS? Come on. Just showing it off. I know my friend over at First Baptist, uh, Jeff, Jeff Flint, is a big iPhone evangelist now, so he's got one. He's like, he's telling Corey, you got it. Chris has got to get one of these. And I'm like, preach it. Preach it, brother. Uh, or maybe you've met a new person. Maybe it was, uh, maybe you're in the dating scene, you've met a new person. Maybe you've met a, met a new friend. Uh, for all of you who are married, I hope you haven't met anyone like that now. But think back to when you met your spouse. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's exciting times. But are we that excited about Jesus' presence in our lives right now? Are we that excited to share the community that we so enjoy with other people? I just have to say, I love this church. I love hanging out with you people when you're not here in these pews and I can just spend time with you. I feel supported, I feel loved, I share life Do I do a good job at sharing that, inviting other people into my circles? I don't know, it's a question. Are we excited about the eternal life that we have hope in? Just a couple of weeks ago, I heard a quote that really challenges me. I shared it with some of you last Monday. How much do I have to hate someone to keep the good news from them? How much do I have to hate someone to keep the good news of Jesus from them? Here's the amazing thing about the Samaritan woman. She had every reason to hate the people in her hometown. They shunned her. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, a town in that day, maybe 300 people. Maybe 300 people. And nobody will talk to her. Except for one, I'm, a, I'm totally taking liberty here, one sleazy guy who's willing to live with her but not marry her. How used must she feel? How shameful. Some of these divorces were probably her fault. Some may have not been her fault. We don't know. Divorced five times. Shunned by the culture. Shunned by her people. But she catches something. She drinks from the living water. And this joy is busting out of her. And she's got to share it. She goes back and shares the good news. 
She couldn't help it. And you know, that's part of our vision here at Lettered Streets Covenant Church. In our vision statement, there's lots about service, service, service. But listen to this. This is a quote from our vision. Can you feel the joy of a conversation or embrace that turns loneliness and isolation into restored relationship? Can you feel what it is to know you're created in God's image and that He loves you with such a love that language fails to describe? Imagine the feeling of sharing such love with a neighbor. Sounds just like this story, doesn't it? Now I know that sharing Jesus can be intimidating. And we often think, we don't know enough, we're not smart enough, or we don't have a cool enough testimony. I wasn't, you know, wasn't divorced five times, so I can't have a cool testimony to impress people. But you know, the Samaritan woman didn't know very much either. In fact, I bet you know more about Jesus than she does. You know why? She didn't have the Gospel of John. We've already read the first three chapters up to this point. John's already told us that Jesus is God. She's not even sure He's the Christ yet. She says, could this be the Christ? She's not even close to seeing that He's God yet. She doesn't get that He's the Savior of the universe. You and I, we know that. Now, this woman doesn't know a lot, but she has experienced Him. She's experienced Him. And she shared that experience with others. I'm not talking about sharing the Gospel A to Z, sitting down with a total stranger and saying, laying out the whole Bible and doing that. But what I'm talking about is maybe helping someone take one step closer to even realizing that they're made by God in the first place, that they're loved by somebody. Taking one step closer to knowing Jesus. I think sometimes we get hung up on thinking we've got to, we've got to do the whole thing in about five minutes while we're on the bus with somebody. That's not, that's not evangelism. At least that's not my definition. In fact, the Covenant Church says evangelism is a partnership with the Holy Spirit that helps a person take one step closer to Jesus Christ. So, we have a great community. I'm proud. This is our church. We have an event coming up on Lummi Island on Saturday. Could we invite friends who don't have this kind of community to that? Maybe a service project like the school supply drive. Maybe you know somebody who would be into that that definitely wouldn't come in in this hot box and listen to me. How can we be creative in sharing what we so enjoy with somebody else? And here's the reality, and I'm, I'm talking about me here, but I'm just going to make some assumptions. You can tell me later if I'm wrong. But I think our biggest hang-up isn't really lack of knowledge. It's our fear of rejection. All right? Our fear of looking stupid. Our slavery to this. To the praise of people. Instead of the praise of God. And I'm speaking about myself here, but how dare I keep this to myself? This, this, week's, this week's a killer for me, you guys. So the woman is filled with living water. She runs back. She shares her experience with Jesus. Her theology is no good, maybe, but she shares what she knows. And now let's check out the disciples. I'm starting in verse 31. 
Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat! It's amazing. But he said to them, I have, no food, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Do you not say, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look in the fields, that they are white for the harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for the life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in, the case of the, for in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor." disciples, man. I feel for them. I would be just like them if I were in their sandals. <laughs> they just don't get what's going on. I mean, all this incredible gushing water stuff, Jesus, this encounter with Jesus, and they're worried about food. They offer Jesus food. He claims they have, he has food that they don't know about. I mean, what is he, hiding trail mix in his tunic and not sharing it with them or something? What do they think here? No, this is another case of misunderstanding that helps us to understand. And we've seen this already several times. Remember, Nicodemus comes at night. Jesus tells him, you've got to be born again, man. He says, how can I get back in my mother's womb? No, he's not talking about concrete born again. He's talking about new life in Christ. The woman at the well is offered living water. Oh, give me this water. I don't want to be thirsty anymore. She doesn't get it. Jesus is talking about new life in the Spirit. And here, Jesus says, I've got food that you don't know about. And the guys are thinking about trail mix or something. And so Jesus has to take them to school. Jesus has to take them to school. He's referring to Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All right? And Jesus is talking about being sent. When's the last time you were so engrossed in your work that you forgot to eat? Because it was that important or you were that sidetracked? But here Jesus is, he's, we already know from the beginning of chapter 4, he's tired, he's thirsty, he's hungry. But here's this woman. I don't know about you, but when I'm hungry, I get pretty grumpy. Just ask Corey. I don't know that I would take the time to, to be that I don't know, proactive with that woman. But Jesus takes the time. And he sees that he's here for a more important mission than satisfying his belly. He's here on this earth for something more important than mere comfort. Okay, He's here for a mission sent by God. And Jesus is making a point here in this illustration about the importance of the work that He's called to, that He's calling His disciples to, and that He's calling you and I to. This is ironic. The disciples who had been with Jesus and seen Him perform signs and wonders, they've heard Him teach firsthand, they need a class on why they should evangelize. While the Samaritan woman simply experiences Jesus and she can't contain herself. Now here's a sign of having the Holy Spirit. Forgiving others and building community. She goes back to a village of people who she has every right to, to hate. 
And she shares herself. She shares Jesus with them. She shows evidence of new life. And the disciples in their blindness show evidence of old life. Jesus takes them back to school and he uses an agricultural saying that they would have understood. And here's this proverb that was common in their, their day. There are yet four months and then comes the harvest. And here's what the proverb means for all those agricultural types. It means be patient. You know, you sow seeds in, in this month and you have to wait four or five months till you can actually harvest. It was a proverb. This means be patient. And Jesus is saying... Patient time is over. The harvest is now. Remember our core verse as a church? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's saying the time has come. The prophets for hundreds of years before you have been sowing seed and getting killed. John the Baptist, sowing seed, laying the groundwork, gets his head chopped off. So uh, the seed sowing is out is out there. Now you get to reap the harvest. Because guess what? The king of the kingdom has just shown up and it's Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The disciples didn't sow seed, but they're called on to be the workforce. And Jesus says that He is sent and that they are sent. Now here's the thing about the word sent. occurs 63 times in John's Gospel. It's a significant word. Two things about being sent. First of all, being sent is not optional. Who are they sent by? They're sent by God. So to not carry out your being sentness is rebellion. And that, when I'm studying this and I'm saying that to you, please know I am, this hitting me right here. When I'm not sharing the good life that I have with other people, I'm being rebellious to God. Other words, sin. The second thing about being sent that is so awesome is that we're not alone. First of all, we're sent together, right? But just as important, maybe more importantly, is that we're sent from God, empowered in His Spirit. He's with us. He's going before us. He's behind us. He's all over. Every person that we encounter, He's already... Remember, He made them anyway. But He's already working in their life. And sometimes it's just our job to say, you know that awesome thing that just happened to you? Could that be God? He's pointing out what's already happening. The disciples didn't bring the kingdom of God, and neither do we. Neither do we. But it was their honor and duty to declare its arrival. And that's, that's what we're called to do. Declare the breaking in of the kingdom all around us. In our service projects, certainly, our service projects are signs of the kingdom breaking in. Little tastes of what will one day be all over the world. Nothing but goodness and love and compassion and mercy. And we get to share in that honor. So, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed. They believed in Him because of the word of the woman. I don't want to skip over that. It's so huge in this culture. This woman is the first real evangelist. The first woman evangelist. And she reaches a people that the Jews just despise. This is awesome. This is riveting. The Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified this. He told me all the things I've done. 
So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking Him to, to stay with them. And He stayed there two days. And many more believed in His Word. And they were saying to the woman, You know, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So far in this mini-series, we've seen the woman called Jesus a Jewish man. Then, he says, you must be a pro-. then she says, you must be a prophet. Then she goes to her people and says, could this be the Christ? And now we've gotten to the place where the whole village is saying, He's the Savior of the world. They're finally getting it right. The Samaritans believe because of the woman's testimony. She must have had some life change. I mean, from despised and isolated, shunned, to they're trusting her, they're believing her. They must have seen quite a shift in her. Maybe that spring of living water bubbling out of, out of her belly. <laughs> Has there been a person in your life who helped you believe? Maybe when you are a kid in campus ministry, maybe you're younger. Someone in your life that's helped you believe. Would someone believe in Jesus because of your life? Would someone believe in Jesus because of your life? And here's the thing. They saw this woman on her worst days and on her best days. Now, I'm not from Bellingham. I've lived here four or five years. And most of you probably aren't from the places you've lived all your life. But in this day, you know, people typically stayed pretty close to home. These villagers knew her life before, and now they see it after. Now, many of you have met me now. Some of you have only known me as pastor at Legacy's Covenant Church. Oh, that guy's a pretty nice guy, kind of weird, but nice, and um, doesn't seem like there's anything real shocking about his life. But check this out. I was at the pastor spouse retreat last fall in Cascades Camp in Yelm, Washington. Corey and I were there. I see this big guy across the room. I'm like, no way. I know that guy. He was on my dorm floor at Eastern when I was 19. Okay, I'm 34 now. Or I was 33 then. So a long time ago. I hadn't seen him since. He says, what the are you doing here? Because I was not even close to being a Christian at that point. And I got to share with him, now he's already a believer, but I got to share with him what God had done. And as I'm speaking, I'm like, man, God's really transformed me. God's really transformed me. Now here's, here it plays out even further. So I, I had the honor of performing Brian and Rosemary's wedding. Maybe you didn't even know this, Rosemary. But I, we're at your reception. And uh, I'm standing in line, and this woman comes up to me and says, Hi, I'm so-and-so from Yakima, and do you know such and such and it was this big guy that I met she says yeah he told me all about how you used to be and how God changed your life and like, wow that's great I could be used for God's glory but I think that this it, it illustrates a point that we need to be storytellers I mean I was just talking with somebody I've known here for years and, and realized wow you've never even heard my testimony before but it's encouraging to hear how God has changed us and He's still in the process. That's exactly what I think won these people over is to see the change in this woman. 
the Samaritans respond, they show hospitality. And I just want you to think how radical this would be. First of all, Jews and Samaritans despised each other. And a lot of it had to do with their racial background, but some of it had to do with theological background. So to them, Jesus, a Jewish teacher, would have been a heretic, right? A heretical teacher. They invite him into their village. They invite him to stay for two days. They house him. They feed him. And maybe you remember me saying in this culture, if you have someone over for dinner and house them at your place, you're showing acceptance of them. They have been converted. They have, they have started down a road now of seeing Jesus seriously as Savior of the world. It's a sign of conversion. The Samaritans believed secondhand through the woman's word. And that's a great place to begin. In fact, the scripture that Meg read said that you know, Thomas believed because he got to touch Jesus' holes and his scars. And then Jesus said to Thomas, Hey, blessed are those who have, believe and have yet to see or won't see. So second-hand faith, believing in Jesus because of somebody else's testimony or the Word, that's awesome. That's a place to start. I think that's where many of us start. But there is no substitute for experience, is there? There's no substitute for experience with Jesus. I've heard it said that God does not have spiritual grandchildren. He only has spiritual children. And there comes a time when each of us has to have our own faith with Christ. We can't just rely on somebody else's faith forever. I learned this at several different occasions, but one was in the winter of 1999. I was in a Coast Guard unit where we responded to chemical and oil spills all over the Pacific. And in that winter, on February, a bulk freighter got grounded off the coast of Oregon in a nasty Pacific storm, overpowered the ship, took it onto the beach. Our team deployed out of California and got on scene in the middle of the night. And at that time in my walk with Christ, I was doing a lot of scripture memory and, and praying the scripture. And I was doing it because somebody told me it was good for me. Right? And I recommend it. If I'm telling you it's good for you. <laughs> So I was doing it because it was good for me. But that next day, I began doing it for another reason. The ship was breaking in two. The winds were over 50 knots. The seas were pounding on the hulk of the ship at 15 to 20 feet. And just how much force was breaking the steel up. We had to get tons of equipment onto the ship to pump the oil off because that beach happened to be the breeding ground of the snowy plover, which is an endangered bird. So we're at Coos Bay at the air station and they're taking us in helicopters by groups of three. Helicopter goes with three guys, comes back empty, and two helos before it was my turn, it didn't come back empty. One of the guys had been lowered down in the basket and a gust of wind hit that basket and he broke his back as it slammed into the side of the ship. It was about to be my turn. And one of the scriptures I was memorizing at the time was Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It was a time when Israel was up against enemies that had technology that exceeded theirs. And they knew that only God could protect them. And as the helo left the ground, oh, the safety of the ground. People should not fly in those things. My prayer was, some trust in helicopters and some in Coast Guard pilots, but I trust in the name of the Lord my God. I climbed in the basket, and they pushed me out the door, and I'm spinning and swaying and praying that prayer 
And over the rotor wash and the waves I hear, Chris, get out! And I realize I'm on the deck of the ship. I must have landed light as a feather or passed out. I'm not above passing out. But I don't think I did. But at that moment, that activity of praying the Scripture became more than something that was good to me because somebody else said so. It became something that made a difference. I experienced God in a new way at that point. And that will always be with me. If we're going to join God in the harvest, if we're going to share the good news with others, the Samaritan woman teaches us that we do not need to have our theology all figured out. We don't need to have all the answers. We don't anyway, right? We need to introduce people to Jesus. We need to share our story. Christianity, this faith that we have, is based on a person. On Jesus. It's not based on doctrine. Doctrine is important. Hear me say that. Doctrine is important. But doctrine stems out of our relationship with Christ as we encounter Scripture in His Spirit. Not the other way around. Our faith is based on a person. We all have a story. And I suspect that you've had encounters with Jesus as well. So for a response to this message, I want to give us a few moments of silence. And on your sermon notes, maybe jot down some of those things that you've kind of forgotten. Some of those experiences with Jesus. Or maybe you're here and you're saying, you know, I haven't even started following Jesus yet. Let me tell you this. All good things come from God. Maybe you just want to list some of the good things that have happened in your life. And Rosemary is going to put on a slide with some things to help maybe jog your memory, some things to think about, ways that Christ may have you have encountered Him. Uh, And I'll close this in prayer, so don't worry about the time. Let's just take a few moments of silence and maybe jot some ways that you've encountered Jesus.